Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of Sharon's very clear and profound vision of the heart-mind path. If you are interested in supporting Sharon's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Sharon. We are. <laughs> How's the weather out there? Is it nice? All right. I'll try to talk fast. <laughs> so we can get out there and do some loving kindness. <laughs> um, first, Roshi, thank you so much for this morning. It was really fantastic and, and very special, I think, and all the different levels and domains that it covered, that you covered. So thank you. Um, and I wanted to go back to basics, sort of. You're welcome. Oh. 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 That was so brave. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) And you have to remind me of your question again, because from last night. Just remind me of what it is, so in case I want to weave it in. My concern is that I have this, maybe it's a, it's an illusion, but I feel like I'm a sensitive, intuitive person, but then I uh, have tried, like Tom Leonard, your loving kindness, and it feels, um, I don't feel it, I don't, it feels okay. um, too, uh, you get it? Okay. So I'll see if I get to it in this round or, or later. <coughs> um, so in the uh, Theravadan tradition, or, or you could say the Southern School of, of Buddhist teaching, including countries like Burma, um, there is a path to liberation that's spoken about and the word path for us tends to convey something really linear. Like, oh, I did, you know, the first part, now I'm up to the middle part, and I don't have to even think about the first part again because I'm beyond that. And, um, but really, it's almost like circular because it keeps coming around and influencing all aspects of our life, and, and we go on and certain things get emphasized or we look, distinctly at certain challenges and we we work to grow in certain areas and then that goes around you know and so uh, my friend Sylvia Borstein uh, in terms of the Eightfold Path which is the classical description once called it the Eightfold Dot you know because that sense of <laughs> going round and round and round um, and wisdom is along the way you know and in some ways it's uh, the culmination, in some ways, wisdom is also considered a stepping stone to liberation or, or freedom, or what's sometimes called the sure heart's release. The path, interestingly enough, begins um, with how we live day to day. Sometimes it's talked about as beginning with generosity, in part because... Um, what we're doing in changing the way we live, getting more straightforward, simpler, more honest, uh, less crazy, is that uh, we're building qualities like self-respect 
and a kind of a certain kind of ease of heart that allow us when we are formally practicing or we're looking directly at things in our minds and you know things we feel that can be very difficult it allows us to be with these things in a more spacious healthier way because the point isn't to you know kind of unearth these somewhat hidden aspects of ourselves and then feel horrible about it or feel defined by it. You know, this is all that I am, this is all I'll ever feel. It's to develop a different relationship to pleasure, to pain, to neutrality. And so that whole beginning part is about almost like building blocks to that different relationship. Like what do we want to bring with us as we look at all these various elements of our experience? So Sometimes they say, um, there's a whole aspect of Buddhist teaching that someone's never talked about, uh, which goes back to joy. It's called gladdening the mind. Like we do things to lift our spirits, to gladden the mind. Because that gives us, it's not a strength that's brittle, you know, that we want. It gives us the kind of openness and flexibility to be with all kinds of things. We can be with beautiful and wondrous experiences without feeling we have to keep them or we'll be left with nothing, right? Because we don't feel like we're coming from nothing. And we don't have to reject or feel ashamed of painful experiences because we don't think that's all there is. You know, that's the sum total of who we are. We have a, a degree of spaciousness and kindness and openness that we actually cultivate. So that's why they say uh, in some descriptions that when the Buddha taught lay people, non-monastics, he always began with speaking about generosity because it really gladdens the mind. It's what Roshi was talking about. It lifts our spirits. It actually makes us happy when we can give. And, you know, it, it doesn't have to be material generosity. Loving kindness falls into this, which is like generosity of the spirit, or you thank somebody, or you smile, you know, uh, or you get more present for them. It, it's joyous. It actually... Uh, really does lift us in some ways. And that moves on to ethics and living in a certain way because it's not impossible to imagine having a really complicated life with you know secrets and all kinds of things and then sitting down and being able to concentrate, but it's harder. You know, mostly if we're, our lives are really that complex and we sit with the effort to get calmer and to concentrate, mostly we find ourselves sort of tormented by, you know, did I lie enough? Who, did I lie to the right people? Maybe I better tell another lie. <laughs> Maybe that wasn't, you know, a good enough lie. I've got to, you know, what if they find out? What if that person ever finds out what I said about them behind their backs? You know, they're still part of my life. And it's like, that would be, you know, what if, you know, and so it's just like a mess. Uh, so while it's not impossible, the suggestion is that for once in our lives we try to do something in the easiest way possible rather than in the hardest way possible. You know, so that doesn't mean any of us is going to be perfect, and it's certainly not a call for a sense of separation or self-righteousness, but there's something about realizing the path is, is the whole of our lives. It's not like an activity we do, like go to church or something like that without a connection 
to the rest of our lives. Um, it's really that our lives are seamless. And we look at everything, how we speak to one another, how we uh, act, all of that. And it's, it's almost, a, it's like this amazing invitation to have a sense of creativity in our lives instead of just being driven by what we're used to. It's like, wow. And, and that's also, when I think of adventure, we very rarely think, I'm going to have an adventure in ethics, you know? <laughs> like, I'm going to have an adventure in truthfulness. I'm going to have an adventure in simplicity, um, in kindness. But what an incredible possibility. So that's kind of the whole first arena. And based on that, we actually practice meditation with um, kind of a better starting place than if we're right in the middle of something that's just so overwhelming and complicated. And then we cultivate things like qualities like concentration and tranquility. So that uh, that's also part of the the spaciousness with which we will look at all of our experience. There's more centeredness. There's more groundedness. We don't get completely sucked into everything. Always, you know, we do from time to time, but uh, we can come back much more readily, much more gracefully. It feels better to be centered than to be just, you know, tossed around all over the place. And based on that, we work with the development of wisdom, which is usually called insight in, in that tradition. And the engine for that is mindfulness. So uh, in, in those schools, mindfulness is not considered the same as calming down or tranquility. It, it's a much more keen look at all our different experiences so we can see them in a new way. You know, something arises, say an emotion, our tendency is often to get completely sucked into it and overwhelmed by it and defined by it forevermore. Or to hate it and feel this is wrong, this, is, this shouldn't be here anymore, I should, I should have demolished this long ago. So mindfulness is said to be this place in the middle where we go, oh, this is what's happening right now. And we can connect to it, we can take an interest in it. In a way, we're free in our relationship to it. Um, and that gives us the opportunity to see much more deeply into what's happening. And that is why it's the, it's the engine or it's the avenue for insight to arise, to, to really understand our lives. And it's said to happen on, and it does happen on, lots and lots of different levels. Um, we see our conditioning sometimes really clearly in ways we hadn't before. That's not always so pleasant, but it's very good. You know, maybe we see, wow, you know, all my life people have told me I can't do this and I can't do that and this is all I'm worth or, or whatever, and it's completely manufactured. You know, and we see that. And that gives us the opportunity to work with that sense of limitation. See, well, and some limitations are real and many of them are not. They are just constructs. We see uh, into our, our inner world, which, as Roshi said, is very rich. It's very full. You know, wow, I didn't know I could 
feel this much um, looking at a leaf. Or I didn't realize I was still angry 25 years later. Look at that. I am. That actually really, really hurt. Or I didn't realize that when I did that, it would somehow still resonate inside of me. We sometimes do a kind of moral inventory. And we think, whoa, I don't even remember doing it you know, in an ordinary day, but here it is. Um, we see into the nature of our own way of approaching things or um, kind of the own personal emotional landscape that we, we reside in. So, for example, I've often talked about looking at my own fear. And so looking at it means not falling into, I'm such a frightened person, I will be forever. Or I can't believe I'm still so afraid of meditating for 45 years. Or, uh, you know, no one could possibly understand what I'm feeling. It's, it's more a sense of like, what is this? What's happening? So usually the first suggestion is that, you know, what do you feel in your body? How does it reflected in your body because that brings us right into the moment and then we kind of watch the fear movie um, which can be very interesting all these feelings tend to be very complex there's more than one thing going on and to really understand what's happening we need a kind of more comprehensive look so I've looked at fear a lot and one of the things I've seen very clearly is that Despite the common adage, you know, of um, people saying we're afraid of the unknown, then I'm, I'm actually not that afraid of the unknown. I get really afraid when I think I do know, yeah. and it's going to be really bad. <laughs> you know, I know I'm going to miss my plane tomorrow in Dallas. <laughs> it was bad enough I was going to arrive in Boston at 11 o'clock at night, but... You know, maybe I should just book a hotel in Dallas because, you know, it's like, because the plane from Albuquerque gets in at like some little corner of the airport, every airport, you know that? Like, and then you want to get on like a bigger plane that goes to another city. You know, you've got to like go across the universe practically to get there. And, you know, and then it's just like in my bag, is I going to get there? So have to pack, you know, that's when I get afraid. It's the stories I tell myself and believing them. And actually, even in the midst of that, if I remind myself, you don't know, then I feel relief. Then I feel space. Now, that's been an amazing insight for me. Because, of course, that's just not, it's not only operating when I'm sitting in formal meditation. That is very much my habit. So having seen that and learned it, I can bring that into my life. I just remind myself, you don't know. Okay. Or I have a friend who said that um, once that she, she's the kind of person who uh, could never say no, pretty much. And so what she did in her sitting practice was she'd call up the kinds of situations maybe at work or family, whatever, where she'd be asked those kinds of questions where it really would have been better to say no. And she'd watch everything that was happening as she called up those um, scenes. And she would feel what was happening in her body, like this rush of energy, almost like panic. Mm -hmm. 
I'm going to fail them. They're not going to like me. What's going to happen? You know? And so then when she was in her actual day-to-day life, let's say at work, and someone would ask her exactly that kind of question, and she would feel that coming up, that was her signal to say, I'll have to get back to you on that. She couldn't quite bring herself to say no, but she could buy time. And once she had time, she could then come back and say no. So that's an example of insider wisdom. It's not like this dry, abstract, conceptual framework that doesn't change our lives. We can use it all the time to change our lives. Because what we see is genuine. It's heartfelt. It's not like somebody's saying this is what you should see. Right? This is what gets uncovered as we practice. And then there's a whole range of more universal insights that uh, we see in the same old way, right? We're paying attention to what our experience is. Let's say it's anger or fear as an emotion. Not only do we see the different strands of different emotions, sadness or you know whatever is kind of part of that complex of feelings, we see they're constantly changing. It's not just a block. It's not solid. It's not permanent. It's not unyielding. We feel like it is. We feel overcome. We feel burdened. We feel beset. We feel defeated. But when we really look at anything, we see constant change. We look at any physical situation. We look at any emotional situation. It's moving. It's in flux. So were we to decide, and we often do decide, to take some action because of what we're feeling, we can do that with a much fuller understanding of kind of the bigger picture. And it's not just limited to the topmost layer. And we remember this is not forever because nothing is forever. So sometimes, for example, if I'm working with people um, at IMS in a retreat and, uh, you know, I tend to see them um, like for meetings over time and uh, I might say to somebody who's feeling really bad because they feel so much anger, well, next time I see you, tell me three things you found within the anger and one of them could be change. Right? So change is one of those universal truths that is reflected in everything. It's reflected in every experience we have. And that doesn't mean, you know, kind of um, worthlessness to experience that everything is changing. Um, First of all, change has different sides. It's also beginnings and openings and doors opening and possibility. And then it's the truth that everything is fleeting. It is vanishing all of the time. And that isn't always the most desirable um, notion, but it's true. And if it's true, it's better to see it than not see it because so much in this society and so much in this world is really designed to try to offer us totems against change. Let's pretend, right? (coughs) This will make you happy forever. (laughs) If you only held on tighter, you'd be in charge, right? Um, If we see it, then we can get in harmony with it. 
And even though there is certainly kind of the bittersweet nature of letting go, it's, it's true. And there's such a rightness to being aligned with the truth that it is its own kind of upliftment right there. We live differently when we remember it's all changing. It's all moving. We find as we look carefully um, this quality, uh, Roshi's been using the word some of uh, what's called in Pali, the word is dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, the most common translation is suffering. Uh, but it doesn't just—it doesn't mean like life is miserable, and that's what we find uh, when we look carefully, um, when we're mindful. It's more a sense of poignancy that um, some things are very painful, and there is in many societies, and certainly I think in in America and in, in sort of the mainstream society, there's almost like a conspiracy. Like, let's not look at that. Let's not talk about that. You know, which of course leaves any of us who are in some pain feeling so much more alone. Right? Um, So the first meaning of dukkha is kind of blatant pain. Something hurts. And I, uh, if anybody wants, like, to create an epitaph for me or something. This is what I want on my epitaph. Some things just hurt. Because I'm not of the school that says, if we only had a different attitude, it would feel okay. And if we accepted things without any kind of resistance, it wouldn't hurt. I really think some things just hurt. The question is, what about the extra suffering? that doesn't have to be there. Something's hurt terribly. Um, Some really, really, really bad things happen. But then there's the other side, which is not that that's not going to be true, but we can, through the force of personal conditioning, cultural conditioning, so many ways, be adding something like isolation, self-blame, whatever it is, that can make it so much worse. There's this really cute story, which... um, it's a very Jewish story. Uh, I was teaching with, so I'll, I'll annotate, um, which I had, I told it, I think the first time I told it after I heard it was like in Ireland, and nobody knew what I was talking about. So <laughs> I had to like explain everything. So anyway, uh, I was teaching my friend Sylvia Borstein. It's her story. So Sylvia has seven grandchildren, and she was telling the story about Uh, maybe her youngest grandchild, who at the time was about nine years old, and whose name is Honor. And uh, she and Honor were preparing these Seder plates for Passover. The Seder plate is, here's the first one, (laughs) if anybody doesn't know. Uh, You know, it's uh, a plate that's prepared for the rituals of Passover. We once had a great Seder here, right in this room. It was amazing. Wow, that was incredible. The and whole, whole place. Tables, chairs. <coughs> it was amazing. Yeah. And everything has a symbolic meaning on the plate. You know, this represents bitterness, this represents sweetness, this represents hope, you know, all of that. So they were preparing these Seder plates and the kinds of foods you usually eat at a Passover Seder. And, uh, 
So Sylvia said to honor, um, I want you to take each piece of gefilte fish. Okay, gefilte fish. <laughs> if anybody doesn't know. I'll be in Ireland. I'm in New Mexico. Is a sort of gelatinous fish that's made out of um, several kinds of fish, like it ground together, you know, and and it looks like a little matzo ball or something. Matzo ball is, you know. Um, <laughs> So Sylvia said to Honor, I want you to take each piece of gefilte fish and put a teaspoonful of horseradish on it, which is how you usually eat it. So Honor said, I never realized before you could take something truly terrible and make it even worse. (laughs) So, So Sylvia told this story and, uh, she then hastened to add, I happen to make very good gefilte fish. <laughs> and uh, I told it somewhere after Ireland. I think it was back in New York. And I told the story, and I hastened to add, I really like horseradish. <laughs> Unfortunately, I said that right before the lunch break, and there was a farmer's market, and people, I had like 18 jars of horseradish, <laughs> which I just gave away. Um, so that's the story. <laughs> We can take something truly terrible, and it is truly terrible, but we might make it even worse, <laughs> you know. So that's the first kind of dukkha we need to acknowledge. Like, some things are really hard. Okay, the second kind of dukkha is more subtle, and that's more that um, instability of life, that things are always changing, that would I could just stop time for a little bit, you know, an hour? But it's not like that. And it's going in this mad rush. And this, it's not like terrible pain. It's not like, uh, you know, awful, awful pain. But there's something kind of poignant about it. Like, wow, look at that. It happened and then it's gone. Or, you know, that was a new car just 20 years ago. <laughs> 18 years ago. <laughs> You know, it was so new. It was like, I'm in the process. I have a, like a really old car in Massachusetts and, you know, bad driveway and ice and stuff like that. So his friends are buying, I mean, I have to buy a new car. So his friends are helping me. And I got woken up this morning with a call from Massachusetts, Beth car. And uh, I got into, I was test driving something, you know, when I was there. And I realized, I don't even know how to turn on a car now. Like, they don't have keys. And, like, I sat in this car, and it was like, and the salesman kept saying, step on the brake or something like that. And I was like, why? <laughs> you know, like, what's that going to do? Like, you know, I'm totally at a loss. And then I, you know, I'm not, I'm not used to, like, a little screen in the front, you know. So, like, if I want to see what's going on behind me, I turn around. And, like... I don't know how you drive, like, you know, it's all weird. Like, what happened to time and life and me feeling confident about, you know, like, it's a kind of dukkha, really, you know. Not, again, it's not terrible pain, but it's like, whoa, like, this is going too fast. This is, like, too much, you know. So wish me luck. <laughs> 
Um, and then the third kind of dukkha is much more subtle than that. It's kind of like the dukkha of conditionality. Um, nothing happens apart from causes and conditions coming together to make it happen. So if you want dinner, you can't just say, poof, there's dinner. You need money to buy food. Maybe you need a job to get the money, or you need to be near a source of food, and you need to have the means to cook it, or someone has to cook it for you. And then like all these conditions have to come together for us to have a meal. So again, it's not like horrible suffering. But it's kind of like the very subtle burdensomeness of life. So that's one example a more maybe provocative and interesting example is what if you have a friend who's really suffering and you know, not just because you're nosy, but you're actually accurate. You know what they need to do to feel better and you cannot make it so. Life is not about a poof. Right? All these conditions have to come together for something to arise. So that's the reality of our lives, right? So this is a part of what we see as that kind of universal level of truth, of wisdom. You know, to see this as wisdom. Because it's also, all of these um, are what we share. You know, it's not just me. This is part of what we share, and it's part of how we learn to relate to one another and care about one another, because we're all living in this same sort of larger reality. And then the third aspect um, is, you know, some schools call it selflessness or emptiness. This was the question last night, like, well, who am I, like, to be offering loving kindness, and who am I offering it to, and what's actually going on here? Um, so these are, you know, this is not that, um, this is kind of difficult to describe, actually. It's not that, our individual selves disappear, but we understand that on another level, we are part of an interlinked network of existence. Um, It's like if you look at a tree, as I'm doing right now, you can see it as just that individual tree. It seems very separate from everything else. Or you can look at the tree and realize on another level Uh, you can consider the soil, which is nourishing it, and everything that affects the quality of that soil, and the rain, which falls upon that soil, and everything that affects the quality of the rain, and the sunlight, and the moonlight, and the quality of the air. And You look at that tree, and you realize it's part of a network. It doesn't exist separate from that, right? And so kind of both are true in different levels, but the level in which it's a network brings us to that vast sense of interconnection, right? It's not that there's nothing within us, or there's not that there's no self in, at all in an individual sense, and people always ask that. Well, if there's no self, how am I going to walk out of the room? And the answer is, if you walked into the room, you can walk out of the room. <laughs> because it's not like there's something in there we're going to destroy or dismantle. The idea is we don't quite see things on every level accurately, right? And so what we're challenging is a kind of ignorance or limitation of view or fixation. Or somebody once said, that's like a billion people ask this question, 
my favorite form of it, I think, was when somebody kind of randomly pointed to someone else in the room and said, well, if there's no self, how come she's not paying my taxes? You know, it's not like it's a soup, really, and that we don't have a distinct life, and uh, we do. But on another level, we are all part of this vast network of connection, just like looking at that tree. We don't exist independent, in charge, solid, unchanging. There's no part of us that way, right? So it's not like there's this little secret self in there. That's in charge. So it's difficult to understand. It's enormously liberating because it could sound very bleak, but it's actually what frees us in the end from uh, the feeling that we need to be in control, that this construct of self and other and us and them is so real. When we actually look, it's much more of a sense of we. So... Sometimes I tell this story, uh, quoting my friend Bob Thurman. He just uses this image. He said, imagine uh, you're in a subway, and these Martians come, and they zap the subway car. So that those of you who are in the subway car are going to be together forever. (laughs) And he says, what do you do? You know, if somebody's hungry, you feed them. If somebody's freaking out, you try to calm them down. Not because you necessarily like them, but because you're going to be together forever. Our lives have something to do with one another. We exist in this kind of interconnected network. What happens over there doesn't nicely stay over there. It comes out over here. And what we do, it matters because it it continually is rippling out. So, You know, science shows us this, economics shows us this, environmental consciousness certainly shows us this, that epidemiology shows us this. We live in this interconnected world. And that's really the other side of of emptiness or selflessness, not blankness or nihilism, but this kind of infinite set of connections. So they say in in, uh, my tradition that we also have kind of personality types where one of these characteristics may, or at different times at any rate, one of them may like ignite us more than others and may really be a vehicle for us more than the others. And uh, that also perhaps is why we maybe choose different schools or different approaches because some of them are very much not excluding the other two, but very much evocative of one. So um, my first teacher, as I said, was S.N. Goenka, and he was all about impermanence. He just talked about impermanence all the time. And that was good, because that was the more obvious. I personally was all about dukkha, um, and I I knew it. You know, I knew it so deeply. And so it was uh, when I was with a teacher or even you know, with Goenka, when it was the, the conversation shifted to that, then I just felt, oh, yeah, I really get that. Whereas a not to that last one, which is like selflessness or um, emptiness, I didn't understand at all. In contrast to this friend of mine um, who uh, told me that the first time he heard people talk about kind of lack of a separate, in-control, solid self, 
He said he so knew it was true. He said this thrill went through his body. And it was like, he said the hairs on his body just stood up. And I said to him, boy, the first time I heard that, I thought, what are they talking about? (laughs) I have no idea. But over time, you know, just watching and paying attention, you see how they all kind of flow together. And if things are that changing, where's the solidity? Where's the substantiality? And, you know, it's just like it happens, but not because it's contrived or because you're thinking, I, you know, I'm practicing this long, I should have had an insight or, or whatever. It just happens. And sometimes you don't even have the words for it. You don't even know what happened. Um, but our worldview shifts and our understanding shifts. And so when we have insights, which are continual, then our lives change, right? So back to behavior, back to the beginning. You really deeply know how changing everything is. You still get a new car, but it's really not the end of the world if they don't have the color you asked for, (laughs) which they didn't. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was like, okay. You know, it's been a long time since I had to buy a car, so it's a very interesting thing. (laughs) Um, You know, we're so taught that we need and we have to crave, and if only we had, then we'd feel better about ourselves. And to step away from that and just say, what would I enjoy, you know? And I don't have to be caught up in, in those ways. That's a function of wisdom where we really see into dukkha. We see into suffering or unsatisfactoriness, however you want to translate it. And there is the possibility of so much compassion for ourselves and for others. Life is not easy one way or another on any level, any of these levels. And look at what we managed to do anyway and the goodness in people and people caring for one another and um, you know, it changes you. And, uh, and so, too, with that sense of uh, emptiness, which is really interconnection. Like the exercise we did last night when I said, how many people are involved and you're sitting here in this room right now? Right? We're all part of some network, many networks. And that's the reality of things. And so we need to be responsive to that, that truth instead of feeling like, uh, it's all about me, you know, in some way, or it's all about them and not me. Um, to understand that uh, real flow that is is the nature of things. So then maybe I'll just, uh, in part, answer your question uh, in context of what I was just saying, and then I'm sure we'll talk more about it tomorrow <coughs> in terms of daily practice, but one of the trickiest things about the development of certain qualities in practice is that they, they tend to very rarely reveal themselves in practice. They reveal themselves in our lives. You know, so it's immensely frustrating for us often, whatever practice we're doing, and I think very much so with loving-kindness practice, um, it's very frustrating for us because we want to be able to measure and quantify. And it feels better to be able to say, I could only be with two breaths before my mind wandered when I started. Now I can be with 18. 
you know, or I felt this particular thing when I was doing loving kindness practice. It's very rarely like that, actually. But the changes we want more balance, more graciousness and letting go, clarity, wisdom. They reveal themselves in our lives, which is where we want them. Right? Very few people practice meditation to be a great meditator. We practice to have a different life. And so when somebody's like at the very beginning of practice and they say to me, um, you know, I tried it and I don't think it did anything. <laughs> um, I know the feeling, you know, but I say, okay, here's a recommendation. Try it for a period of time that feels you can do, you know, because you can't tell from like once, you know. Um, let's say you're going to try it every day for a month, which is a reasonable commitment, if that feels like a reasonable commitment to you. Then at the end of the month, you do want to assess or evaluate. But the place you want to look to see if it's worth pursuing is your life. Because that's where the results will show. It may not show when you're, when you're sitting in a formal posture or formally walking or something like that. So you have to remind yourself that that's the arena in which to... And it's, you know, how am I when I make a mistake? How do I speak to myself? How is it when I meet a stranger? How is it when, you know, there's this time of adversity, whatever it might be? Um, that's, and interestingly enough, often people will say other people saw it in them before they saw it in themselves. So that's even a further complication. You know, I've had many people say to me, I was going to stop meditating, and I think anything was happening. And then my kids came to me and said, please don't stop. You're much better, you know. <laughs> so sometimes that is the beginning, and then, you know, you, you kind of sense the change in yourself. And it's not, you know, all at once, you know, but you definitely can see the kind of progression over time if you look in, in your life. So um, that's where wisdom manifests itself. That's when they say wisdom is for the sake of liberation, the sure heart's release. It's for transformation. It's not a commodity. You know, it, it's for the transformation of, of our, our being. So that's my discourse. Is that water rain or is that it just... It is. Oh. So it's got to be so beautiful out there with uh, bright sunshine and rain falling. I was going to send you all out doing walking meditation, and I thought... Well, I don't know. I walked down from the Upaya house, and um, my left cheek uh, was rained on, and my right cheek had sunshine on. <laughs> wow. Beautiful. <laughs> It doesn't look like we could just do a Johnny Mathis uh, kind of moment and walk in the rain. <laughs> okay, so tell me how this. I thought, do they have a hose going here? I thought that a water show. It might have stopped actually. Um, there's a way of doing loving kindness practice while walking, which I think is a great experiment to at least try. Uh, you don't have to go outside if you don't want to. Um, 
But I try to do it, for example, all the time walking down the streets of New York. Um, and uh, I'll just say a little bit about it. Um, as we walk in, walk in a normal pace, uh, as we always say in Barry, Massachusetts, because we have neighbors and stuff, we say, look normal. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you're doing, you know. Just walk at a normal pace. And even as you're aware of everything around you and who's going by and stuff, um, you can have a very light awareness on the silent repetition of loving-kindness phrases. So there are many, many ways of doing this the way I like to do it. Uh, And usually in walking, it's just like two phrases. Uh, So you can match it with your steps. Um, The way I like to do it is to basically have those phrases be for myself. So I'm walking along silently, (laughs) repeating... (laughs) Uh, may I be happy, be peaceful, be happy, be peaceful. And then when someone comes strongly into my consciousness, someone walks by and I see them, I hear a bird. Um, someone from home like pops up strongly. For a few moments I include them, like, oh, be happy. <coughs> and then I just go back to the phrases for myself. You don't have to be in a hurry and, you know, in terms of the phrases and, um, you know, kind of pace yourself so that you feel just the presence in the moment of where you are, but you also have this touchstone. So it needs to be very light awareness so that you're not like hunkered down trying to block out everything else, but it gives you a very different way of walking down the street or being in an airport or in a subway or whatever. Um, I like doing it that way because there's a lot of life out there. And it could be really kind of jagged, like I'll be happy, be happy, happy. So the framework of the phrases for myself gives me like a container. But it's also, it's totally out of control. Like maybe you're afraid of dogs and you hear a dog. It's like, woo, be happy. You know, all kinds of things can happen. And then we just can come back to the phrases. So does that seem clear in terms of instruction? So again, so I'll ask you to really make this a period of practice, whether you actually go out and do walking or you walk inside or you have a cup of tea or whatever you do, see if you can keep the phrases going. Uh, Eyes open. Uh, Silent repetition of the phrases. Um, And uh, please try to keep silence for this time. Okay, so say 25 minutes gives us a longer break and a chance to, to also do this. So I'd like to um, lead a loving-kindness sitting now. Um, and then tonight we'll have you know, more time for discussion and so on. So um, of those four qualities, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, there are ways of doing kind of different practices for each one. If you wish, they're very similar in that they each use phrases and they, uh, the phrases change depending on which quality you're trying to evoke. But more commonly, we take one vehicle, like the vehicle of loving kindness, and we practice all four throughout the one vehicle. So we say equanimity is always there. Equanimity has to be there, or that's like saying wisdom's not there. And uh, if 
wisdom isn't there, or balance isn't there, then loving kindness isn't actually loving kindness. It becomes what one of my friends once called loving kindness with an edge. Like, <laughs> may you be happy by, let's see, Wednesday. Maybe I can give you till Thursday. And, but I have like a long list of people to make happy. And you may be at the top of the list now. But, and speaking of lists, here's your list of things you need to change, right? Um, remember, this is supposed to be a practice of generosity. It's generosity of the spirit. And that means a freely given gift, like may you be happy. Not like may you be happy and thank me and, you know, right? So it's, it's that freely given gift. That's what equanimity allows um, by its presence, even if unspoken presence. That's what it allows. And depending on who the recipient of the loving kindness is, it could become a compassion meditation. It could become a sympathetic joy meditation, even using the loving kindness phrases. So if you choose a friend, for example, who's really struggling, it becomes a compassion meditation as you are offering, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, or whatever your phrases happen to be. If you choose a friend who's doing really well right now, it becomes like a sympathetic joy meditation, even using the same phrases. So that's what we're going to do in this sitting, okay? Um, once again, you can sit comfortably and you can begin with the offering of loving kindness to yourself. Just gently repeating whatever phrases you may use, three or four phrases like, may I be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease, or whatever your phrases are. Just gather your attention behind one phrase at a time. You don't need to struggle to have like a super special feeling. The power of the practice really is in that complete wholehearted presence. And then when your attention wanders, it's okay. See if you can gently let go and come back. And see if you can call to mind a friend who's doing pretty well right now. They may not be perfectly happy, but at least in some arena of life, they're enjoying success or good fortune. So if someone like that comes to mind, you can bring them here. Get an image of them or say their name to yourself. Get a feeling for their presence. And offer the phrases of loving kindness to them. And if no one comes to mind, that's fine. You can just stay with yourself. And a friend who's not doing so well right now, 
who's struggling in some way. If you think of someone, bring them here and offer the phrases of loving kindness to them. And then everybody here, which does involve many different kinds of relationships, those whom you barely know, those whom you don't know at all, those whom you know very well, and yourself. May we be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease, or whatever your phrases are. And then all beings everywhere. Those beings being born, those in existence, those dying, near and far, known to us and unknown to us. May all beings be safe. Be happy. Be healthy, live with ease. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes. So thank you.